Welcome to Prima's 2022 podcast series. My name is Shonda Ragland. I am the Director of Education at Prima. On this Prima podcast, James Kerbeam and Courtney Ramirez will discuss insurance requirements and contracts, tips for effectively transferring risk. James is the Director of Risk Management for the Las Vegas Valley Water District. Courtney Ramirez is the first Vice President of the Public Entity Group at Alliant Insurance Services Incorporated. We will also be joined by Prima's Education Coordinator, Taekwon Gilbert. Taekwon will moderate the discussion. Enjoy the podcast. Courtney, James, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. So to start, in an effort to transfer as much risk as possible, how can agencies ensure that they are asking for the right insurance? Well, Taekwon, that's an age-old question. How much insurance is enough? And I get asked that almost every day from my clients across the nation. It's tough. I think the most important step, or the first step rather, is ensuring that you have strong identification in place and that you have templates for insurance requirements that support or back up that identification provision. Then approach each risk independently. So, you know, you want to have those templates as your starting point, but don't approach them or don't take the cookie cutter approach. You start with the template and then you reserve the right to modify those requirements so that they are commensurate with the risk. That's exactly what we do at the district. We have a template based on the type of contract where we have set requirements. And our philosophy is to throw everything in at first because we can always remove stuff, but it's harder to add stuff. So, you know, we'll throw stuff in and it may not be relevant and then we would have the contracting party come back to us and request that either be deleted or or waived from the requirements. Do you have any suggestions on how to handle streamlining the contract language process, especially for entities that are departmentalized and having lots of employees involved in structuring language and reviewing requirements? Yeah, this is a really tough thing when you have organizations that have, you know, contracts handled at the department level. There has to be some sort of oversight to make sure that it's meeting some sort of baseline requirements and that, um, you know, you are protecting the organization to the, the best extent possible. So going back to, you know, the first question, having that those contract templates in place as a good starting point and everyone utilizing something like that and and even having a central point, whether that be through legal or risk management where those tougher questions can filter through or you can reserve, you know, the right to increase those limits, waive things if appropriate, et cetera. Um, There has to be, you know, someone that is making those decisions on behalf of the entity. And what we do at the district, Taekwon and Courtney, is we have risk management in the process loop for contract approval. So all contracts come through risk management to review to make sure the appropriate insurance language is in there. It can become tedious if you are a one-person shop. And hopefully what you do with the people you're working with internally is develop some sort of learning curve. For most governmental entities, the majority of contracts you're doing are the same. So hopefully the purchasing group you're working with or whoever manages the contracts for you is learning what you want as a risk manager in these contracts so they won't have to continue to 
have you review ones they've looked at and you've looked at year over year. Yeah, and, and to add to that, I have seen some fairly large claims based on, you know, organization not having some of these procedures in place where, you know, a department failed to verify certificates of insurance and they weren't matching the contract requirements or the contract requirements did not address all of the exposures for that risk. And, you know, at the end of the day, the entity is going to be stuck holding that bag. So pretty important part of the overall process. How do changes to the overall market and increased litigation costs interplay with establishing appropriate coverage requirements and limits? That's a great question. You know, we talked about establishing templates and the need for having a centralized way or flow of information and approval process, et cetera. But it doesn't really stop there. So, you know, things in the market change. We see lawsuits, these larger verdicts and settlements come about, and they they do set a new precedent. And so it's very important that the templates are being reviewed on a regular basis and adjusted to make sure that they are appropriate for the current time. So, for example, for many, many years, entities had a a baseline requirement for general liability of a million dollars, and that was sort of the, the norm. But as we know, a million dollars isn't what it isn't what it used to be, right, in today's world. So having the ability to increase those is very critical and also making sure that you're addressing emerging trends. So changes to, you know, our overall marketplace and society, for example, now we have a lot more individuals that are working remotely. And so have your, you know, templates been modified to address increase cyber risk and, and things like that. that. That's very important right now. And I think, too, part of it comes down to a philosophy of what are you using the third party's insurance for? The big fear and concern I've always had throughout my career is that I truly don't know what's in that third party's policy. You know what I mean? I have the certificate of insurance, but that doesn't tell me all of the terms and conditions. And No one is getting entire policies when they're doing these contracts. So you're assuming a lot of times on what coverages that third party is actually providing you as part of this contract. So for me, I count on my own insurance as my protection. And what I get from the contractor is just the gravy. So a lot of times, and we're also lucky enough to have tort claims protection so I can have some lower limits. But a lot of times, you know, I look at it as I want to cover the retentions that we have under our own policies to keep our costs down and say, if something breaches that, then I'll go to my policies for the coverage that I know what it is and what I have. Yeah. And again, we're talking about creating, you know, sort of policies or procedures, but there are those situations and we've all encountered them where you know, the it's a political thing or for one reason or another, you need to utilize a, a vendor that is local or meet certain parameters through your procurement process. And those are business decisions that have to be made. But, um, you know, establishing baseline that is appropriate for our current state of the market is what, what we're talking about here. Can you provide a couple of refreshers on the ISO changes that have impacted coverage application? 
That's a great question. And the ones that I want to highlight, or the one rather that I want to highlight is it's a little old at this point, but when I am talking to my clients about contract requirements, um, it always brings about a lot of questions. So back in 2013, there were some changes made. And the biggest thing is everything now ties to that written agreement. So whether that's a contract or a purchase order, there needs to be some sort of agreement in writing. Otherwise, you know, you risk that insurance might not be there to respond. So that's that's the first thing. And then the real big one that I want to talk about is additional insured language. So the old additional insured forms used to include both ongoing operations and completed operations. The easiest way to think about that is while the contractor is doing the work, it's ongoing. But as soon as they complete the job and walk away, what happens if there's a loss? So, for example, you have someone build a fence. While they're building the fence, it's ongoing operations. But what happens if in a year from now, the fence falls down and causes bodily injury or property damage? If you don't have product completed operations, there would not be coverage. And so that additional insured language changes under those ISO forms, separated a lot of that out into two separate forms. So if you're not able to get the old additional insured forms, then um, you do have to make sure that you're getting both the additional insured language on ongoing operations and the additional insured language for product completed operations, which is two separate endorsements. And of course, a lot of the vendors that you're using might not be using standard ISO forms. And so, you know, you have to read every single one of them. The key here is making sure that if you're requiring product completed operations, that the additional insured language is providing that coverage. Hey, Courtney, one thing we've started doing with regard to the written agreement language is we've had our contractors put that language in their subcontractor contracts because in our contracts, we require the supplier and their subcontractor to have the same terms and conditions. But if that subcontractor isn't required in a contract to have us as an additional insured, then our concern is we don't have that coverage with that third party. So we think it's best practice to require if your contractor is going to use a sub, that that contractor requires the sub and their contract to make sure they're naming you as an additional insured. That's critical. And I'm really glad that you mentioned that because, you know, it used to be that people would uh, try to police, for lack of a better term, all of the, the suds and they would collect insurance from all the suds and, and this, that, and the other. And that's a very big job, right? And so we do provide that same recommendation, James, where we recommend that you make your contractor responsible to collect the insurance and make sure that they are requiring the same level of coverages and you know, other provisions in their agreements as well. That kind of just takes that burden off of your plate while also making sure that they are meeting those same requirements. What suggestions do you have for managing the cyber risk in contracts? I'll take this one, Courtney. I think the key is to let everyone realize insurance isn't the answer. I've been in contract talks internally, and some of my internal customers would say, well, we're requiring insurance. The problem is you can never require enough insurance if there's a cyber incident because you have to realize if there's an incident, it's probably just not impacting you. It's impacting all of their customers. 
And if you're requiring a million or $2 million of limits, you're not going to have enough, you know, for any sort of major breach that's impacting all of their customers or clients. So I would say the key is to do the due diligence upfront. What we do is we do a cyber questionnaire where we evaluate the worthiness of our contractors, depending on what they're going to be doing and how they're going to be accessing our system. And we make a determination from there first whether or not we can even do business with them. So I think on this one, it really isn't a good thing to just think about transferring because you're not going to have enough funds to be made whole. It's more about mitigation up front. Right. And and just a reminder, you know, it covers third party, obviously, the notification and, and any negligence or or whatnot, but it's a first party coverage. So your vendors are buying cyber for their exposures or breaches that they are responsible for. And so, you know, your organization, your cyber protects you and data that you are responsible for safekeeping. And I tell you too, Courtney, what we're finding is it's becoming cost prohibitive in some instances. We had a situation where a contractor wanted to add $30,000 to one of their bids to include the cyber cover because they obviously didn't have it prior and they probably don't have all the mitigation strategies in place. So, you know, if you're looking at counting on third-party coverage, you know, to protect you, it could be quite expensive in your contract, an additional cost to your contract. Yeah, with the changes we're seeing in the market right now, and I think we're going to see a lot or continue to see a lot more pressure in that space. And more and more organizations are not going to be able to afford it and are going to have to choose or make those hard decisions on whether or not they want to self-insure that risk. And, you know, our, our agreements are going to have to adapt to anticipate that kind of a change. We have reached the end of our podcast. Thanks to our speaker and all of our listeners. Please visit the Prima website to hear other Prima podcasts, view upcoming Prima webinars, read Prima blogs, and learn about other Prima educational resources. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and our very own Prima Talk. Have an amazing day.